0: So we're reading from um, Acts chapter 5, two sections, starting at verse 27. It's on, as you can read, 1145. So verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So over to verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped preaching, I mean teaching, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus, that is the Christ.
1: This first part of the reading is from one Peter verses four, seven to eleven. One Peter verse chapter four verses seven to eleven. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear minded and self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do so, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen.
2: The end of the world is nigh. You can picture the man, can't you? With the sandwich board, walking down the street, proclaiming that the end of the world is about to occur. Maybe you don't remember the sandwich boards, but you've seen the movies. Hollywood loves the idea that... Somehow the world is about to end and you need Bruce Willis to save you. Some Christians are obsessed, aren't they, with the end of the world. Obsessed with working out when, looking for the signs. Others of us live as if the world will go on forever. For if we're honest, that's what we believe. Peter says at the beginning of our passage today, the end of all things is near. And he wants us to change how we pray, change how we love, and change how we suffer. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Well, clearly, Peter got that wrong, didn't he? Here he was in the middle of the first century, and he believed it seems that the world was about to end. Here we are, reading those very words, 2,000 years later, and the words are still here, and we are still here. Did Peter get it wrong? Did he really mean that the world was going to end that year? Well, have a look at it. The end of all things is near. You have to look at the verses a little bit before. Verse 5, they will have to give account to him who is ready, ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter has just said that Jesus is ready. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, the end of all things is near, for Jesus is ready. Back in chapter 1, Peter said that that the prophets in the Old Testament had predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And at the end of chapter 3, just before this, he said that the Christ suffered, died, was made alive, was victorious and now rules over his enemies. The Christ would suffer and enter into his glory. And Peter says, it's happened. What God had predicted, what God's plan was, has been fulfilled. And now Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's a little bit like one of those end-of-the-world movies. There's the great tension. The world is going to be destroyed. Where is Bruce Willis? How will we find him? And is he in love with someone? And will that romantic relationship work out? Will he get to the meteor? Will he destroy the meteor in time? Will the earth be saved? It all happens. The earth is saved. The tension is resolved. All the steps have been completed. And there is only one more step to go. The credits need to roll. The end of the movie is near. So it is with the world. All the steps in God's plans for this world have been completed, except for one. Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead. Therefore, the end of the world is near. Jesus is standing at the door. There is nothing more to do. He is ready to enter. The end of all things is near. So I simply want to ask you, do you really believe that? That God has finished his plan, that there is just one step to go and that step could happen at any moment, that the Lord Jesus is ready to enter. What would it look like if we really believed this? Well, Peter says it's got nothing to do with looking for signs and working out the date. It's changing your life. Verse 7 again. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. In the movies, when people find out the world is about to end, it always produces fear and panic because they don't want it to end and they can't control it but do you see here it's the opposite therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled we know who's in control and we know that the end of all things is near and now we can be clear-minded and self-controlled in the way we live we are so busy aren't we with all the things we are fussing about with there are so many things to do on our to-do lists that simply must be done But if we believe that the end of all things is near, then at least some of those things will become less important. We will not be panicking about them. We will not be overburdened with them, for we know that things could end at any moment. And no one will stand before Jesus on the last day and say, "'Sorry, Jesus, but there are things left on my to-do list. "'Can you hold on a moment? They're really important.'" No, we'll be alert and self-controlled seeing what is really important. And Peter says that will show in your prayers. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. It might mean that we actually do pray for we realise that our busyness is not that important and so we will make time to pray to God. But literally it says, be clear-minded and self-controlled for your prayers. This is not just so that you can pray, do you see, but it will change how you pray, what you pray for and what you pray for the people you are praying for. You can pray for anything at all. God is interested, isn't he? And so my mum has deteriorating eyesight through glaucoma and other conditions, I should be praying that her eyesight is blessed by God and maintained or healed. That's a good prayer. But if I believe the end of all things is near and her eyes could be destroyed at any moment, I'll be praying for more than that, won't I? I'll be praying that she'll know that the end of all things is near that she'll be ready for Jesus to return when he is to judge the living and the dead. And how will I pray for myself, not just my health or my happiness or the things I'm concerned with, but that I might set my hope fully on my living hope, that I might be holy, that I might be transformed and ready for Jesus to return. I wonder if someone could listen to your prayers, listen to who you pray for and what you pray for then, would they think to themselves, here is a person who really thinks the end of all things is near? Or would they think, here is a person who thinks the world will go on forever? The end of all things is near, Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled for your prayers. Not just for your prayers, though. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply, earnestly, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Because the end of all things is near and we are about to spend eternity with each other where we will love one another in the new creation. Well, how should we treat one another now, says Peter? With love. Love one another earnestly, deliberately, with great effort. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Our world says that love covers over a multitude of sins. It really doesn't matter how you live because there is no such thing as sins. All you've got to do is love. Love is everything and there are no morals anymore. That's not what this means, is it? God loves us and in his love he dealt with sin by giving his son to die for us. So that in a sense his love covers over our sins, and we are forgiven. As we love one another, our love is to cover over sin by overlooking sin and by forgiving sin. Is there some way that one, someone else in our church annoys you? Is it a little thing? Is there someone in your home, someone who you live with, who again and again does something to annoy you, but you could overlook it? Do, says Peter. Is there someone who has hurt you, who has sinned against you, and you are struggling to forgive? It's not a matter of overlooking, for it is not a small thing. It is a big thing. And Peter says, love, when you know you have been forgiven yourself, covers over a multitude of sins, even big sins. By enabling you to forgive. You know that the end of all things is near. So do not repay evil for evil but with blessing and keep no record of wrongs. Is there someone, is there something you need to show love and forgiveness towards? Well, Peter gives two ways that we should express love. Verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now we know all about hospitality because hospitality means you go to a cafe, you order something you really like, and you do it with someone else. You stay at a great hotel, you check out the reviews, you pay your money, and you put the reviews online afterwards. We know about hospitality. It's an industry. That's not what Peter means at all, is it? There was no industry in those days. The word hospitality means love for strangers. That's where the word comes from. And so he says here, in your love for one another in God's family, those who are strange to you, that is, they're not already your friends, they're not just like you, they are strangers to you, love them. And love them with your food, is what the word means, and love them with your home. In the first century, you would have people stay in your home because there were no motels. And so Christians come to your town, you put them up. And that's hard, isn't it? You can tell that it's hard because it says, "Love, uh, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. How could you possibly grumble when you have someone over for a meal? You know, they didn't say thank you for the meal. They didn't eat all the peas that I so lovingly cooked. Their children just left their toys all over the floor and they left. It's easy because hospitality is hard. Because people are not always like us and can take advantage of us. Now we need to do this well. It might be that having afternoon tea works better and is far less work and you spend more time with people. Be sensible about it. It might mean you need to have boundaries. And if you have someone stay in your house and it's possible they could stay somewhere else and it's getting difficult, it would be okay to encourage people to move along and provide for them in some other way. We need to be sensible about this, but we need to love. Love with our homes and with our food. Do you think our church is good at this? Do we show hospitality? Do we invite others who we are not already friends, who didn't invite us to their home last week, to our home? I ask because I don't think we are. And I think this is a way we need to grow. Let me ask a better question. Not, are we as a church good at this? Are you good at this? Is there a way you could show hospitality with the home and the food that God has given you. The second way that Peter says that we should love one another is by using the gifts that God has given us. Verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. In this last stage, while we await the last step in God's plan when the Lord returns to judge, he has given gifts, Gifts to build up his church. Different gifts to different people, but they are all God's gifts. And as we saw last year in our series on serving, when you get a gift, you enjoy the gift by using it. Has God gifted you in speaking to other people about him? Use it as if you are speaking the very words of God, as if these words really matter, as if they could really change someone's life, whether it's up front or in a conversation over morning tea. Has God gifted you in serving other people, in cleaning and building and organising? Then do it with the strength he provides, which implies that you do it more than you would naturally do. Do you see? It implies, I think, that we actually get stretched in serving because we need God's strength. Are you stretched? Love one another by showing hospitality and by using your gifts. The end is near. The end of all things, says Peter. And it ought to change how we live. If people could hear your prayers, if they could see how you love one another, would they be able to tell that you think the end of all things is near? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for telling us that the end of all things is near, for there is just one step to go. Father, help us to have that in our minds, to really believe it, And we pray that it would change how we pray for people. That it would change how we love people. Help us, Father, to be more hospitable. Help us, Father, to use our gifts to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning in the second half of our passage, Peter says that the end of all things is near... Therefore, Christians will suffer. We're going to watch a video now about some Christians who are suffering in another part of the world. Then we're going to read the second Bible reading and then I'll talk about that as well.
1: 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though suffering strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and the of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their
2: faithful creator and continue to do good. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Why would Christians suffer in God's world We do struggle to understand, don't we, why people would persecute other people for simply changing their religion. We struggle to see why people would, with violence and with ostracism, why they would think that was good and fair. But as Christians, we ask the question even more, why would God allow this to happen to his people? We do get surprised After all, Jesus has died, been made alive, was victorious and now rules over his enemies. What would you be expecting to happen when Jesus now rules over his enemies? Not suffering for being a Christian. So how can Peter say, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering? Well, the words there, painful trial, means a fiery ordeal. And back in chapter 1, he talked about how you experience all kinds of trials in this life, that your faith might be proved genuine, that it would be refined like gold, shown to be true and so result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. God brings suffering generally for us, that we might be refined and our faith proved genuine. Here in chapter 4, he applies that particularly to suffering for being a Christian. Suffering is to purify his people. Have a look at verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a strange verse, isn't it? I thought that Christians escaped judgment because Jesus had been judged instead of us. So how can it say it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God? Back in the Old Testament, God wanted his people to be pure. But again and again, they were not pure. And finally, he was going to throw them out of the land. He was going to judge them. Ezekiel 9, he said, I'm going to send judgment on you, my people, right in Jerusalem, right at the temple, the house of God. And so he did. The house of God was destroyed. The people were thrown out of the land and cast out of the land, but he brought them back in the hope that they would be pure, but they were not. And so in Malachi 3, he says, I am going to purify you from the house of God. Right there at the house of God, I will purify you and from you will come judgment to all the nations. So Peter says, verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. The judgment, the purification that God promised to happen, it is time. Jesus has suffered, he's been made alive, victorious, now rules, the end is near. And what should happen now? The purifying of God's people through suffering for being Christian. Why should Christians suffer now when the end is near? Because that is God's plan. God's plan to change us, to purify us, to get us ready for Jesus' return. And in God's plan it starts with us the judgment of purification and when Jesus returns it will be the judgment of destruction for all the people of this world. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it's hard for the righteous to be saved because it involves suffering, what will become of the ungodly? And the sinner. In the video we just saw, we learnt of a new Christian, a new convert who had turned from his previous religion, put his trust in Jesus, and experienced great suffering. Persecution from the government, persecution from his neighbours, he had to move, he lives in fear of his life. Surely he would be surprised by that. What would he learn if he read this passage? What would he need to do? Understand that the end of all things is near and that this is God's purpose for him, that he might be purified. What do we do when we read this passage? We really don't suffer that much, do we? We watch the video and we are amazed that this man endures that. We do not think, oh, that's just like my life. I had an occasion just like that this week at work, do we? But we do experience ostracism and suffering and discrimination or rather we fear it and avoid it. The impossible application from this passage would be, as a Christian, I should try and avoid persecution do you see not just because we don't because that is God's purpose for this time so do people know that you are a Christian are you keeping silent because you don't want people to give you a hard time are you ashamed of Jesus and as a result missing out on God's purpose for you that you would be purified Through suffering. Is there some way this week that you need to own Christ and no longer be ashamed of him? Do not be ashamed, he says, but rejoice that you bear that name. The end of all things is near and so Christians will suffer. They must suffer for that is God's purpose for this time. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters that they will endure and be purified. We need to pray for ourselves that we would not avoid suffering. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for explaining to us your plan. It does seem a strange plan for us. We're not sure that we would plan things that way but you believe that us being purified is more important than us being safe or happy. Father, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters that they would know, believe and accept that and so endure, not be ashamed and rejoice. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would be aware when we are choosing to avoid suffering by keeping quiet Father, help us to realise that that is our purpose at this time. And so, Father, help us not to be ashamed, but be prepared to speak, for we have set apart Christ the Lord as holy. We pray it in his name. Amen.